Penn State Conversations is a podcast produced by the Donald P. Bellisario College of Communications. Episode topics range from the people, programs, and events that shape the Bellisario College to discussing key aspects of life in the professional world for young and upcoming communications alumni. Please enjoy this episode of Penn State Conversations. And welcome to this episode of Penn State Conversations. Jacob Wilkins here, very excited to be joined by the voice of Penn State men's hockey. He also does work for Big Ten Network as a correspondent and also is the voice of Westwood One's coverage of the Frozen Four. That's Brian Tripp. If you're in the State College area, I'm sure you've seen Mr. Tripp around. Hi, buddy. How are you? It's great to be with you, Jacob. Great to hear you. Oh, yeah. As, as always... Let's start, you know, it's funny, as I was going back through some of your past work, uh, you know, we could do a whole half hour on interviewing because, I mean, you just put on a clinic, I think, in that department, and we'll get to that. But let's talk about Michigan-Penn State, where you were a correspondent um, for the most recent whiteout. And tell me, when do you find out about that assignment? How do you go about preparing for it? Uh, and sort of take me through the evening because you're not the rights holder per se, ESPN, ABC is, but obviously BTN gets plenty of access. So, so take me through how that all goes down. Yeah, Jacob, going into the season, I learned from BTN that they are interested in using my services for games that are local. So what BTN does for its BTN tailgate program is they'll have reporters on site at games that are not covered by Fox or BTN that are, as you mentioned, rights holders with uh, ABC, ESPN, ESPN2, ESPNU. Um, so they'll have someone at those local campuses. So I know before the season that most likely any games that are not being aired on Fox or BTN, they'll likely use my services for. Um, that will be confirmed about a week or two prior to the game once the TV schedule is officially announced, uh, sometimes earlier, but usually a week or two prior to the game. And then in the days leading up to the game, I'll just look for storylines that are relevant. What we're usually doing for the BTN tailgate show is one or two morning hits that are approximately a minute to a minute and a half in length, or maybe even a 30 second update. For instance, earlier this year for the pit game, uh, when the game went into a weather delay, that was the perfect time for BTN to have a reporter on site. So I could provide live updates or at least semi live updates to the BTN studios. So I try to come up with storylines. Usually it's injuries uh, in contact with the producer of the pre-game, the tailgate show, and also sometimes if it's a night game, we'll do a segment for their game break show. Um, so that's also a minute update. And then after the game, you interview the winning team's coach and players. Uh, if it's a Big Ten versus Big Ten opponent, as Penn State and Michigan was, I had questions prepared if Michigan had one and questions prepared if Penn State had one. So you try to get a sense for what the big storylines are going into the game. Obviously not being a part of the live broadcast of the game, you have a little more flexibility where you can prepare stuff during the game. Um, but during the week going in, you want to find out what's the one or two key things those teams are focusing on, provide any last-minute updates with the game, and obviously injuries are usually a big part of that. Where will you watch the game while it's going on? From field level, the press box, or do you go back and forth? I usually go back and forth. I prefer the press box because you can see more and hear more of what's going on. When you're doing the job that I am, you're just trying to formulate the best questions for after the game. You're not doing in-game reports or anything like that. So I feel like the press box gives you a really good feel for that. But then when the fourth quarter is winding down, you get down on the field and get yourself in a position where you're with your cameraman to go and shoot the interviews. And you want to feed those back to the BTN studios as quickly as possible. 
Um, and we just send them back to Chicago and then they air them almost live. So it's not a live broadcast per se, but because of the relationship BTN has with all of its college campuses, especially here at Penn State, where they're really, really good at what they do, um, we're able to feed that back and they can use that about a minute or two after we're done recording it. Right. And tell me, once that game ends, I mean, that's always it always seems like an exhilarating rush. And you've been a sideline reporter for BTN when they've had games. But what is it like? Are you coordinating with Penn State officials to get who you want or is it a mad scramble? Yeah, it's with whichever team's team personnel is down there on the field. So, for example, last year when Ohio State beat Penn State in the whiteout, Jerry Emig, their sports information director, was down there and he helped us grab Chase Young. He helped us grab um Dwayne Haskins after that game to do a quick interview with them and the same thing with Penn State I'll let their sports information personnel know um which players that we're interested in talking to the rights holder gets first preference and our job is to get those back to BTN as soon as possible so if we don't get those shot on the field we have to then wait until after the press conference to shoot those interviews so that would be a detriment to BTN's coverage so we try to get those as soon as the rights holder is done with coach Franklin or with Sean Clifford or with whoever is the star of that game. We try to get out there on the field, and it is almost like a live interview. It's very similar to doing a post-game interview on live TV if you were the rights holder. And to use Penn State and Michigan as an example, uh, where the game's in the balance right till the end, uh, one of the things I think you do really well is you ask simple, direct questions that are open-ended and elicit strong answers. What was your uh, thought process nearing the end uh, of the game a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, it's interesting because I'm sitting there during the first half and, and my questions are going to be based off of the environment and what Penn State did to create such a large advantage. But as the game winds down, you know it's close. That thing, those things that you formulate in your mind earlier aren't relevant. What's relevant is how were they able to persevere and finish that game out? And then the other big story of that game that BTN hit on that everyone talked about was the whiteout. So how did that crowd influence the way that they played? So those were the two things for Penn State I wanted to get to at the end of the game. Um, even though there were significant plays earlier, just how were they able to close it out with that dramatic goal line stand and then closing it out by running the football on their own terms? So those were the things I wanted to focus on with the players. Uh, and then you had a chance to talk with Sean Clifford and KJ Handler, who have that great relationship and their connection's been uh, impeccable for Penn State to this point this year. So you want to try to get into what allows them to be so successful on the football field, and you can just see the bond that they have as teammates. And in those moments, especially after a really thrilling win like that uh, for Penn State, how do you go about You don't want to uh, squash the players' emotions mm -hmm. uh, in any sense, but and you certainly want to be a good listener and not just be focused on hitting question one, question two, but obviously you want to keep their focus too. How do you handle... Uh, where the participants are going to be, you know, r coming right off the field and really uh, emotional and, and wound up. Yeah, I think the first thing, and I had Sean Clifford first for that game, and he was actually running over to the ESPN cameras. He was jumping on Coach Franklin's back, giving him a hug, and then he came running over to us. You just see the emotion on his face. So I asked him, Sean, we can see you're very emotional right now. So what does this win mean to your football team, and why are you so emotional and fired up? So that was what you wanted to kind of convey to the audience. Uh, something similar with Coach Franklin happened when James Franklin came over. He grabbed his daughter, Addison, his youngest daughter, and he pulled her right in front of him. So at first, I was going to ask him about how they closed that game out. But once he had his daughter with him and she was wearing white, I'm like, Coach, your daughter's here with you. She has the white on. I can see that this was a very emotional win for your football team. And you're playing with such 
high stakes and such an electric environment. Because she was there, I wanted to play off that family, that relationship, and the crowd aspect because she had that white sweatshirt on as opposed to asking about closing out the game first. So I then changed the course of my questions and asked him about closing out the game second just because his daughter was there, and I, I didn't want to ignore the fact that she was standing there first with the coach. So you have to have an idea in your mind. Um, I always have an idea of what direction I want to go. I always have an idea of what questions I want to ask, but I think it's more through your preparation and having a keen eye watching the game and knowing the personnel and participants that allows you to think on your feet. If you try to stick to a script, it's going to look very staged. It's not going to feel very natural, and it's not going to allow the coach or players, whoever you are interviewing in that case, in any instance, to get the most out of that interview where you kind of have that back and forth where they trust you and you can trust them. You get that really good back and forth and, and the good the good response is that you get that in the moment response that you're trying to get there on the field, which is something different than if you were to do it 30 minutes after the game, say in the hallway or in the locker room. And it goes back to television as a visual medium. It would seem mm -hmm. wrong to not acknowledge his, his daughter standing right there in, in white. So that, that makes total sense. Yep. Let's focus on coach Franklin for a moment. Uh, and you've interviewed him, you know, quite a few times. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about, interviewing him uh he's a very dynamic uh, charismatic uh coach at the same time he's very disciplined in terms of messaging um and and thoughtful in how he's going to say something how do you go about uh strategizing whether it's in the recruiting shows or whether it's on the field interviewing him particularly yeah i think i've been very fortunate to build a really good relationship with him just from a professional standpoint where he trusts that i am prepared for the interviews i'm going to ask good questions and I'm going to ask questions that make him and his program look pretty good. Um, with BTN, we're not exactly going after the hardest hitting breaking news of, uh, you know, if there's something controversial. Right. Um, that, that's just the way that the relationship between the Big Ten Network and the conference and the schools work. That being said, um, I do try to ask questions that, are, that elicit thoughtful responses that are questions that fans want to know the answers to. So I think I've developed a really good relationship with him first and foremost by coming to interviews prepared, asking questions that he appreciates that I put that research into and that are thoughtful questions. They're not yes or no questions. They're questions that leave uh, room for an open-ended response. And I think that's really important with him. Um, and then with Coach Franklin, you know a lot of the principles of his team, the one and oh each week mindset. Well, at the end of the Michigan-Penn State game, I know what the answer is going to be because I'm trying to tee up a question for him. And I think I asked it as such. I said, coach, your team has really bought into the one and oh mindset. But here you are past the midway point of the season with a huge emotional win and your team remains unbeaten. What do you feel like the ceiling is for your football team? I didn't ask him, do you think you have a Big Ten championship team? Do you think you have a national title team? I first went to and recognized the fact that they're mindset is always 1-0 and each week, but I tried to get an answer out of him to find out, engage where he thinks his team really could be at the end of the season. The answer I got is that they're happy to be 1-0 and this week and that they're <laughs> going to enjoy that win for a couple more moments. But it's at least me trying to, in that situation, elicit that type of response that I'm going for. Um, again, it comes with trust, and I think he really trusts the questions that I'm going to ask, and it usually because of that, he's not on the defensive. Instead, he's someone that is willing to provide information to fans in the audience um, because the questions are thoughtful. And I was going back and looking, you were on the sidelines as a correspondent for BTN and what will certainly go down, I think, is one of the most important wins <laughs> in the Franklin era, the win fittingly with them playing Minnesota uh, in a couple of weeks against um, Minnesota back in 2016. 
Uh, and your two questions to uh, James Franklin after the game, what's the emotion right now? What changed in the second half, which I thought was beautifully illustrative as it really gave him the, the leeway and, mm-hmm. and you just got out of the way. Uh, what do you remember from that day? I forgot if that was your first BTN sideline assignment, but to take me through that moment. Yeah, it was. And that was an interesting day because typically when you have the sideline reporter, they're working with a, a wireless microphone. And that day we were actually confined to following the camera around because we were connected to the camera. We didn't have the wireless set up. For some reason, there are all these things that go on behind the scenes in a production truck and in a television production. And for some reason for that game, I didn't have the freedom to roam sideline to sideline. And I can only be in communication with the truck by having my microphone plugged in with an XLR cord to whatever handheld cameras were on each sideline. And there was one camera on each sideline. So anytime I was to leave one of those cameras, I wouldn't have been in connection with the production truck and in TV. That's a big no, no. You always want to be connected to the truck. You always want to have your eyes and ears on the game, listening to the commentators in your earpiece, but also making sure that you're readily available if they need you for something. So that game was interesting from that aspect and that I was a little bit confined in what I could do. Um, yeah, you said it. That was a game that changed the course of perhaps James Franklin's tenure here. And I think, it really catapulted that team to the Big Ten Championship that year. Uh, as that game's winding down, it's back and forth. Penn State came from behind. They didn't have anything going in the first half. Fans were actually booing the coach um, off the field at halftime, and they were chanting, fire Franklin. It's incredible to see how far they've come and how much respect he's garnered here at Penn State, where I think he's the best coach in the Big Ten and one of the top five coaches in the country at this point. Um, but that's a day where the first thing I'm thinking after the game, how do you pull this out? I don't want to put words into his mouth like, coach, how happy are you right now? And then he starts to go in that direction. I just want to know what that emotion is. So instead of me describing or putting uh, a word out there to describe the potential emotion, I just wanted him to say, what is the emotion of that win? Because it was an emotional game for him. It was an emotional game for his team. And in hindsight, with what that led to for them. And then they, they didn't do much in the first half. So I know you referenced my second question is what changed? I mean, anyone watching that game is probably wondering, what the heck's going on? And all of a sudden, how did they find a way to come from behind and beat Minnesota? So instead of me thinking about this long-winded question, I mean, everyone at home is just going, how the heck did that happen? So I wanted to ask it in a professional way, Coach, what changed? And yeah. that's why I went with that question. Yeah, and the inflection and yeah, the way uh, you just phrased it was, was really good. Take me through, and we'll get to the hockey uh, in a moment. But the recruiting day is an interesting one. Uh, it's just a different sort of event. It's obviously unique, I think, especially to college football, um, but is very important to those that, that follow it. How do you go about covering that? Yeah, recruiting is a lot different, especially the way the recruiting rules have changed now. If you remember, the big BTN signing day special used to be the first week of February, and now it happens right before Christmas because most of the prospects are officially declaring and signing on that December signing day. So that's number one, something that's really changed here over the last couple of years. When I go into that, I'm just trying to prepare information about all the prospects that are already committed to Penn State, are on the fence about Penn State, and maybe any surprises that there could be. So I just try to have a little information on all the players, learn the team's strengths and weaknesses, and where that class stacks up compared to the other classes within the Big Ten and across the country, and what type of players can make an impact right away. Um, Recruiting is such a fluid situation. Uh, there's so much that goes into it. The guys who cover recruiting all the time are really, really good at it. So I try to read their work in preparing for that assignment 
And they're just asking questions that I think most people would want to know. Which players can come in and play right away? Which players are you happy about? Were you surprised, for instance, when Micah Parsons announced? Um, what went into that announcement? What went into the process of getting him? Because Penn State now the last few years have, has had a few big commitments on the actual national signing that Noah Kane was another this last year where they actually watched his recruitment and his announcement in the room, um, his final commitment. So you're trying to gauge what the atmosphere is like. It's more of a party. But also, I know players, and this may come as a surprise to some people, players make those announcements live on national TV. Usually the coaches, the day or two beforehand, they have a pretty good feel of what that kid's going to do when they're sitting on that stage. Very, very rarely is it a true wild card. Even with Micah Parsons, even with Noah Kane, they had a pretty good idea that he was going to come there. So you know that. You obviously don't want to spoil a kid's announcement coming in. Um, when they landed John Dotson, I had heard earlier in the day that he was going to Penn State. But he wasn't announcing until uh, sometime afternoon. So you just say, you know, maybe this player is leaning towards Penn State. We're looking forward to hearing his announcement coming up at noon. Um, so you kind of find those things out from being in the room. But we're not in the business of breaking that news for those young men because um, it's not official at that point. You do never know what a, a 17, 18 year old individual is going to do. Uh, they usually have a pretty good feeling beforehand, though, even on those last minute surprises. And I would think the emotion when you're interviewing James Franklin there, and not that he conveys a sense of the of stress, but he even alluded to it in one of the interviews where he says, we're going to go, you know, celebrate and have a nice time. Uh, is There's got to be a sense of relief. Yeah, and you just look at the schedules they maintain all the way through the course of the season, then in the recruiting periods, during the season, after the season. Once that recruiting signing day is done and you're going into the dead period over the holiday and into the bowl season, they're done. They can finally unwind. So I think it's a celebration of the prospects that they get. And there's no question in college football, the better players you get, the better chance you have of succeeding. And they've done a really good job of developing talent here, but they've also done a really good job of accruing talent. Um, so it's a celebration of what they are able to accomplish. And I think that's a big reason why he's been so successful is the relationships they've built in recruiting and then to get those players to commit here to Penn State. Absolutely. Let's shift gears to hockey, and you're in the thick of both seasons, really. Uh, and tell me, and I forgot when the first year of Division One hockey uh, was, but take me through how you became uh, the voice of the program. Yeah, Jacob, that's a great question. And after graduation from Penn State in 2011, I actually stayed up here. I was doing play-by-play -play for Penn State women's volleyball, color analyst work for Penn State women's basketball and Penn State baseball as well while working with Steve Jones on his local talk show. So I was already immersed within the Penn State athletics culture. And then I learned that there was a chance that job may open up for Penn State hockey when they went Division I full time in 2013. They had played a mixed Division I schedule the year prior. So I actually went down and I love hockey, but I never had any experience calling hockey play by play. But I thought I might be pretty good at it. And I went down to Hershey. They played the Ohio Bobcats in a game at the Giant Center. And it was part of their outreach that first year. They played in Scranton. They played in Hershey. They played all over the state of Pennsylvania. They played down in Philadelphia to try to gain exposure for their program. And I went down. I sat there and I recorded a demo. And I think that showed that I was interested in the position. It also showed that I could do the job, even though I never really had called a hockey game before. And this was just me sitting there by myself with a recorder and a microphone and recording myself calling a hockey game. No idea at the time if it was any good. I listened back to it. I thought there were some good spots, some bad parts. And then in 2013, when they began their Big Ten slate, the first hockey game I officially called was the first game at the Blue Ice Arena that Penn State beat Army in. 
And believe me, I was nervous. I, I don't think I was very good. It took me a year or two to get comfortable. Hockey is such a fast sport that so many things happen with the penalties and line changes. It really took two or three years for the sport to slow down for me. I think I was okay at first, but I really have grown over time. With anything in play-by-play, the more reps you do with anything, even with reporting, the more reps you do, the better you are at it. And uh, I was very fortunate that Greg Meiford, Jim Nachman at Penn State, Coach Guy Godowski, Mike Ruzbicki, there were a lot of people uh, in the athletic department that trusted me because of my work with the other sports. Um, a lot of people respected the work I had done. And then when this opportunity came open, they felt like maybe if I was a little green at first, that's okay, because they knew I could handle the assignment. And in the long term, hopefully it's worked out for the best for both parties. And so was it that first year that you had the job or were you sort of in a live audition even <laughs> as the Big Ten schedule is going on? Well, I think in this job, there's so many people. You're always are, sort of in a live audition. I yes. agree. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you can ever feel comfortable. In yep. that. The moment you start to feel comfortable, that's the moment where you're not putting your best work out there and someone else is going to come take your job. So, so to me, every time I'm on the air, I feel like I'm trying to prove myself that I'm the best um, at what I do and that I'm worthy of that position because you're so privileged and honored at a spot like Penn State, uh, Division One school, one of the top universities with great programs. You know, you're always trying to re- represent yourself and represent the university to, to the highest regard. And I would think that the not to take anything or diminish just being able to call Penn State hockey, but when you get the nod to do the Westwood One Frozen Four, uh, that is taking it to another level in ways you're being acknowledged more than any award could as the top collegian or top broadcaster of collegian hockey in the country. Uh, how did that come about and what was that experience like? Well, Jacob, that was a great opportunity for me because at that point I was looking for a critique on my hockey tape. And two years prior, I had sent my hockey tape to Howard Benaroff, who is the executive producer of Westwood One Sports. And He's very good at helping young broadcasters and coaching young broadcasters and giving them feedback. And I had mutual connections who have worked or interned at Westwood One. And they said, Brian, send your stuff to him. He's going to give you a really good critique. Because believe it or not, there aren't a lot of people out there that provide hockey critiques. Not a lot of people uh, have the experience of broadcasting it. And I was looking for a critique from one of the highest regarded and most well-respected people in sports radio. So I sent him my stuff. I I didn't hear back from him with a critique for over a year and a half. And I'm thinking, oh, this is just another waste of time. And he calls me in February prior to the Frozen Four two years ago and says, Brian, I finally listened to your hockey tape, but it was really good. And by the way, we are in the process of finding a new Frozen Four broadcaster because Alex Faust had done it the year before. And I think a lot of people know him now working on Fox Sports, most specifically in hockey with NBC Sports and the Los Angeles Kings. So he left and took the TV job in Los Angeles Kings. He said, not only did I like it, we're going to consider you as one of the finalists for the position. I'm like, wow. I just went from looking for feedback on my work, and now all of a sudden it just shows if you get your demo tape into the hands of the right person and they like your work, you never know what can happen. And he went about a process for another week or two and said, you know what, we're going to offer you the position. Uh, had a little feedback for me on what I could improve to, to make it national network quality. And away we went. The first year I did it, I felt like I was kind of auditioning myself. As we talked about before, you're always trying to prove yourself. And that probably wasn't a good mindset to have. I think I was a little tight, a little nervous broadcasting. But they really liked my play-by-play. And then last year, I felt so much more comfortable doing it. And you're working with great people there. Larry Costigan's our producer of that event. And he provides feedback uh, every year with me. And I went to New York City two years ago. 
and sat down in his office and we listened to the third period of the national championship game and it took about three and a half hours to listen to one period so they have really keen ear for everything and really appreciative of the opportunity and then the experience that i've gotten what i've learned from them in just two years and doing six total broadcasts has been something so valuable to my career and who is and you're working with you know just on air you have uh, an ice ice side reporter and uh, was it Joe Micheletti's brother? Yeah, Pat Micheletti is our yeah. color commentator and actually it was supposed to be Colby Cohen the first year but he got sick so Pat came in last minute and then Pat actually was brought back again this year and he's done a terrific job. What a great personality, uh, super humble. You wouldn't know that he had scored almost more points than anyone else in college hockey history. And then Shereen Sasky is our rinkside reporter, and she's immersed in the college hockey world year-round. And she actually was a producer behind the scenes, so she really, really gets it. And she's awesome. She's just awesome. So both of them are so great to work with. And I think having that chemistry with her on-air team and developing that now, having the same team for two straight years, uh, made our broadcast even better back in Buffalo in the spring of 2019. And it shows to those listening of uh, the younger age group or whoever's listening that even at the highest levels, you, you can't be content in that there, there's always feedback being given. And that's great that you're able to sit down mm-hmm. uh, with Larry. Let's talk about relationships and sort of the latter stage uh, of, of this podcast. Uh, and, you know, I think the relationship we've formed is unique in that there, it started with, obviously, for those that don't know, we went to school together. You were a year after I mm-hmm. was, but it seems like almost the same period. Yep. Um, and so we've known each other a long time, but there was always this mutual respect of each other's ability. And I think that's allowed for honest feedback uh, on each other's work, or if I consult you on a demo or vice versa. Mm-hmm. And what's funny is, uh, I feel this way, uh, is that, you know, sometimes you're very, as you say, you, you, you give a critique to someone, you, you say, give me whatever feedback you want, uh, but do you really want the bad feedback? You know, but uh, with you, I think there's always a comfort level because, again, there's that basic, you know, uh, respect of this is just to, to make you better. Take me through uh, or talk about the importance of those sorts of relationships uh, in this business, uh, particularly when many see it as so competitive. Yeah, it's an incredibly competitive business. And it's always great to hear from your mom and dad who listen to the games. Man, that was great. But first of all, my harshest critic is myself. I listen back. And I think this is important <laughs> to any broadcaster. Yeah. I yeah. listen back to almost every game I do. If not every game, I'd say 75 to 80%. Um, and then any TV reporting, I watch those back and I critique myself. So Number one, I am evaluating myself, but then it's also really good to send that out. And I don't think you always have to send it out to um, top network executives or, you know, in that last case with Westwood One, Howie Deneroff, other broadcasters, friends that were in school with you, just friends in general to watch, who know your personality. Uh, I just want to hear feedback from everyone. What are they thinking? What are they saying? And I send it to people that I trust are going to be honest with me. Again, it's always great to hear from mom and dad that you did a really great job. And they're always going to say that. And sometimes you do need some positive reinforcement. I've listened to games back, Jacob, where I thought on the air I had a terrible game. And I've listened back and thought that was one of the best broadcasts I've ever done. I've left an arena thinking, man, I was really good tonight and listened back to the game. And I over-announced the game. And it wasn't very good. You had trouble following the puck or whatnot. So that's the reason I listen back, try to watch out for crutch words that I may have infiltrate my broadcast or anything. And if I'm repeating words over and over again with hockey, I like to have a diverse vocabulary. Uh, I'd listen back to that kind of stuff, but it's also important to 
establish relationships with other broadcasters, with friends, family, anyone, because I think just the valuable, honest critique is important for any young broadcaster, any broadcaster in general. I think uh, as I get older, I'm still going to listen back to broadcasts. I know from the Westwood One experience and talking about fellow broadcasters there, Kevin Kugler, Kevin Harlan, guys that have done some of the biggest games on the biggest stages, they always get feedbacks from Westwood One and critiques as well because they're trying to improve their work. And I think if you're not hungry to improve your work, then you're probably in the wrong business. Yeah, but it's a good point about the things that people pick up. And and I agree being the toughest critic on myself. Uh, Funny, my parents very supportive, but my Mm -hmm. dad will bring up something Oh, it seemed like it was, you know, it'll bring up a crutch word. And it's like, uh, yeah, dad, I, I, I called the game. I, I was quite aware uh, of, that, <laughs> of what I did there. Um, but the other thing I remember sending, it was just more for fun. Hey, you want to take, you know, friends are curious <laughs> what we do. And it's an interesting Same. business. And I sent a reel to a friend and I was so, it was a television reel. And I was very cognizant of what I thought was an obvious, I forgot if it was a tick, you know, Mm -hmm. something, uh, some body language gesture. He didn't notice it. And it's like, oh, you know, sometimes you do get in your own head and will overanalyze something. And it's healthy to have someone that's not in the industry that doesn't have a stake in um, your success per se, uh, or your, your growth to be able to just watch it from a casual standpoint. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And sometimes having a little tick or maybe you stutter once or something to you, it's the end of the world. But yeah. to them, it's a, it makes it look natural. It makes it look like you're just having a conversation. And I think sometimes we're so worried in this broadcast business about trying to be perfect or trying to hit scoring time and maybe it limits your personality on the air. Uh, from a play-by-play standpoint, the number one thing I always tell people and students I critique their work, you can be as descriptive as Kevin Harlan on Monday Night Football on the radio. You could be the most descriptive, articulate, well-spoken broadcaster, but if you don't sound like you're having fun, I don't want to listen. I want to listen to someone that's having fun calling the game. So first and foremost, if you're having fun and, and you're passionate about what you do, that comes through to the audience. Then you worry about all that other stuff. And once you have that other stuff, you're going to be okay. And doesn't it also come down to being authentic and being yourself? You can't yep. try to be Kevin Harlan. Nope. Uh, you, you doesn't mean you, you have to be personality-less, uh, but you've got to be you. Yeah, I think along the way, I've taken little bits and pieces from each broadcaster, whether I'm doing a TV yep. football game or I'm doing uh, hockey on the radio. There are some things I'll listen, and I listen to a lot of games. And it's not just my favorite teams or not just games that are on national TV or national radio. I'll pick up my phone, and I think the great thing about the NHL app is you can listen to any game on any radio station from any team for free. So I'll put on a random NHL game. If I'm laying in bed one night, and I want to listen for 10 minutes. And I, I know I heard, uh, I think it was a Colorado Avalanche broadcaster. He described the circles, and I just was sick of saying, oh, they're in the face-off circle. And he called it a ring. I'm like, well, that's great. Now I can call it a circle, a ring, a dot. It just helped diversify my broadcast. You pick up little things along the way. I like the way, if I'm doing TV, I like the way Joe Buck lays out after a call. I think he's the best at it. So I try to do that. If I'm doing um, hockey, I try to mix in a lot of different words. I don't think um, on radio it is the best to have maybe the dialect and vocabulary Doc Emmerich has because the audience can get lost on radio. Um, But I do try to use some of the terminology that he uses because he's the best in the business and the best to ever have done it when calling hockey. So you take little things from these broadcasters along the way, and then you mix that in with your own personality and you try to create something that fans are going to enjoy. And you serve as a conduit to the action. If you put yourself above the action, you think anyone's ever tuning into 
listen to you, you're making a big time mistake because people are going to watch the game, listen to the game, no matter who's announcing it. And that's the perfect segue to the last thing uh, we can talk about on the podcast is when we're looking or there's opportunities where we may need someone or need help, what do you look for in um, whether it's a partner or a, a, a young broadcaster or even a producer? Because I think we have the same mindset in, in how we sort of identify talent, quote unquote. Yeah, number one, they do have to be skilled. But number two, I think willing to learn, humble. If you're making yourself, as we were just alluding to, bigger than the broadcast and you come in with an ego and look, young broadcasters, I know at the time when I thought, oh, man, I can't believe I'm doing this. <laughs> but you'll get knocked off that that pedestal pretty quickly. Um, yeah. You always want to be willing to learn and you always want to be willing to improve. And I would rather have a broadcaster who's a little bit more raw, uh, for lack of a better word, and yep. a producer who's a little bit more raw, but is passionate, is excitable, is well prepared. If you prepare, I always feel like you can you can make up for your other deficiencies. To me, the most important Besides having fun, the other most important aspect of putting together a good broadcast is being prepared. If you're yep. prepared, and I'm not saying script your broadcast, if you're prepared, you can be ready for any situation, any occurrence that arises. When I prepare for a game, I have stats that I won't use the entire season, but that the 15% that I use each broadcast changes every single time. And I think you can teach broadcasters the other stuff. But if they come in with a know-it-all attitude, maybe that they're more important than the broadcast, that they skip on their preparation a little bit, uh, those are the people that I don't enjoy working with. I enjoy working with, and I think a lot of people in hiring positions enjoy working with people who are good people, have good personalities, are willing to learn, really prepare, work hard. And I think eventually those people will develop if they don't have them already. And I think a lot of people do have natural gifts when they take those positions. But if they don't have those natural gifts or they're still a little bit raw or maybe they don't have the reps that everyone else has uh, in that same age range or they're a little bit inexperienced, I think hiring people or people in my position that if you're looking for someone to work with, you work with those kind of people every single time. And the other thing is, and we've talked about this, you know, off air many times, it's easy and we're breezing through a podcast here. It all seems, you know, like one thing is on top of the other mm -hmm. and it all is one, one big uh, arrow to, to upward success and, <laughs> and mobility. But th there's a resilience aspect that I think a lot of people don't realize. And I think that in ways is the true metal of, of the broadcasters that really make it. Yeah, I agree. And there are your... Very rare other school, Adam Amin, Joe Davis, I think are great. Right, Noah Eagle, who's right great. Now. Yeah, yep. Ian Sun, yep. yep. Yep, there are young broadcasters who get into those positions. And you yeah, know, not taking anything away from them. But most of the time, you read more of the Kevin Burkhart stories where you had to be an auto salesman or you grind away. And <laughs> when I started at Penn State, I was working at the local furniture delivery place, delivering furniture, yep. just so I yep. could make a living while doing what I love. And it's still not easy. I still do substitute teaching to make a little extra money on the side. And I think I've advanced pretty well in the profession. So it's not the most lucrative profession at times, but you do it because you love it. And, and I think that you have to grind. If you come out of school, and again, there are those rare stories. If you come out of school thinking you're going to land a network job or a job with a pro sports team doing their TV or radio, you're sadly mistaken. Now, is there a clear path to get to that job? No, maybe it's going in minor league baseball. Maybe it's going into sales and working yourself into a play-by-play -play role. Maybe it's going and going the local TV route and, and trying to go 
there is no there is no script for how you get to where you want to be in the profession. The way I did it is I developed relationships at Penn State. I really like the people I worked with here. And because of my work, not only once I graduated, but even as a student, I was trusted and I was given some opportunities. And then those opportunities lead to more opportunities, which lead to more opportunities. And throughout that process, I'm networking with local people, regional people, national people, and you develop relationships and connections along the way. So I stayed at Penn State. That worked out really, really well for me to this point. But for someone else, they may have to go to Billings, Montana. They may have to go to somewhere in the middle of the Midwest where, you know what, they're doing farm reports, but they're also doing play-by-play because they're getting those play-by-play reps. Maybe the other person goes and does local TV anchoring and sports reporting, but they want to be a play-by-play broadcaster. And eventually because of the connections they made there, they get in. Maybe someone goes and does it. Like there's so many different ways to do it. And I think that's why this profession is intriguing, interesting. It's super ultra competitive, but also as a young person, you got to trust your gut and go with what you think is best. And if you try to do the exact same path that I took, or maybe the exact same path that you took Jacob to landing your gig, um, it may not work for everyone else. And I think that's what makes it at times frustrating, but also really rewarding when you know the hard work you've put in uh, gets you to where you want to be and what you want to do. Very sage advice to end this Penn State Conversations conversation, Uh, Mr. Tripp. Thanks for the time, buddy. Jacob, always a pleasure to hear from you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Penn State Conversations. For more information about the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications, including the latest news and upcoming events, visit belisario.psu.edu or find us on social media at PSU Belisario on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.